Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's Schools of Culture, History and Language, and Archaeology and Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Society and coming to you from a studio in the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock. Thanks for sticking with me through that ever-lengthening introduction. On my left here, I have Julia Brown. Hello. Simon Theobald. Hello. And normally we would have Jody Trembath in the fourth seat, but she is in South America at a conference of some kind. We miss her very much. Instead, we have a special treat, a special guest, Justine Chambers. Hello. Justine is a PhD candidate researching understandings of morality among Karen people in Myanmar, and she's also associate director of the Myanmar Center here at ANU. So let's dive right in. Julia, what are you thinking about this week? This week, I've been thinking about many things, but one of those is harm minimization in public health. I recently published a paper in Anthropological Forum on the experiences of smoking and vaping amongst my ethnographic participants with chronic schizophrenia. Vaping e-cigarettes is a nicotine replacement therapy in the UK, whereas in Australia, it is not. It is categorised the same way as tobacco cigarettes. The smoking rate amongst people with schizophrenia in Western societies is at least triple that of the general population. In the UK, over the course of my field work, more and more of my participants were beginning to entertain, if not uptake, vaping on the recommendation of their clinicians. The doctors in the UK were actually recommending that the patients start vaping? Yeah, so it was encouraged in the same way that Nicorette patches might be in Australia. And what I observed is that this gave patients a sense of self-reclamation, which is quite tenuous otherwise. So the theoretical point that I want to focus on here is this question of striving for perfection where there is this really concrete thinking about good and bad behaviours. So part of this is moral. Interestingly, this is also the definition of psychotic thinking where you become fixated on ideas to the point that you're not open to exploring a middle ground or someone else's viewpoints. And I would contend that the situation we've got in Australia in regards to harm minimization around smoking and the reluctance to endorse vaping as a harm minimization tool starts to border on that psychotic edge. Just a thought, this reminds me, in Myanmar, the sort of proliferation of drug use has been a huge problem, particularly in ethnic minority areas. And as a response, there's been these vigilante groups that have been burning down poppy fields and it's hugely problematic because a lot of the communities that engage in poppy cultivation are the most vulnerable to conflict. The reason that they grow poppy is because it's quite a short harvest cycle. It can be moved quite easily and it lasts a long time. It's a really problematic area for not just these vigilante groups to be moving into, but even in terms of how aid and development groups want to think about addressing this issue, because there's quite a black and white approach to stopping drug use is a good thing, right? But actually, like so many communities survive on growing and producing drugs and selling drugs 
you need to sort of move into this grey area of mediating a different approach to how one might do this in a way that doesn't totally just affect those most vulnerable, such as schizophrenic patients who generally smoke. If you just implement a ban on or Im- implement taxes that increase the cost of cigarettes, then it actually affects the most marginal people in society. Absolutely. Would you say that smoking is a survival strategy for people with schizophrenia, the way that growing poppy could be a survival strategy for poor people in Myanmar? Physiologically and neurochemically, nicotine acts on the same receptors in the brain as antipsychotics. And perhaps on the part of clinicians who are prescribing other drugs, there is this awareness that those drugs aren't perfect either. We're already in messy territory. And I know from the responses I've had from psychiatrists in Australia on this issue, they are on board with this idea of vaping. Because a lot of the antipsychotic drugs also cause a lot of harm, don't they? They do. Would you say that since Australia has sort of been leading the way in terms of eradicating cigarette use, would you say then people are even more marginalised here than, say, in the UK? Yes. And you've actually tapped into something really critical because Australia is very proud of Mm. its smoking denormalisation efforts. And anything that might compromise that such as introducing vaping, puts that reputation at risk as well. I guess I've been thinking because I think even vaping now is banned in certain public spaces as well. Yes, in Australia. Uh, In Australia. And so, yeah, I guess that raises a really interesting question whether or not it actually should be re-legalised. Well, should it be treated like methadone? I'd be really interested on listeners' thoughts to this. If you're a smoker or a vapor, what does this mean to you? Look, I'm not super familiar with Simone Dennis's work on this. I really can't comment on it in a kind of methodological or, or theoretical sense. And I know Simone feels kind of defensive about the idea that she's not actually promoting an idea that smoking is necessarily an acceptable social phenomenon. She's really just talking about, you know, what do smokers themselves say, do and think. But I don't like smoking. I don't like vaping. And I don't want to share a space with people who smoke or vape. I hate the idea Well, that of is psychotic thinking, Simon. If that's psychotic thinking, I will embrace that. Moving on, looking for another uh, dose of Simon's psychotic thinking. Simon, uh, what are you thinking about this week? I am unpsychotically thinking about smell. I recently came back from fieldwork, and one of the first things I noticed when I arrived in the field was the way in which I, I smelt home. Mashhad has, where I do my fieldwork, has a kind of, at least to me, has a particular kind of smell, uh, and it's a slightly, ever so slightly kind of noxious smell. It's not truly poisonous like Tehran is. It's a combination of, I think, the fact that it doesn't rain very much and the fact that there's a lot of cheap, poorly refined petrol smoke in the air. So everything's very dusty, and you notice as soon as you've been walking around for a couple of days that your shoes get much dirtier quickly in Mashhad, and your clothes tend to get dustier. Not not dirty, but just kind of dusty. But there's also this really pungent smell, and it got me thinking more broadly about the notion of smell as a kind of, not as something that we would necessarily ask our informants about, because I know there's been a bit of research looking at, into kind of broad socio-cultural variation in terms of how people understand smell. But what I was really interested in is the kind of nose as an ethnographic implement. I mean, there's been a whole movement towards in anthropology of the census, right? People like, is it Thomas? Simone Dennis. Simone Dennis, Thomas Sordas, Timmy and Gold, obviously. But of the various senses, I would say smell ranks the lowest. Except with the anthropology of smoking. I'm not I'm not totally not over the, the literature on the anthropology of smoking, but in the kind of brief Google scholar search that I did, there was comparatively little. And I kind of was wondering why we pay comparatively little attention to the issue of smell, given for me, it's such a kind of integral component of what it is that makes up a field site. You know, a field site is 
as we all know, as anthropologists, something that's composed of social relations, but part of those social relations are the smells that people produce themselves, that they smell around other people. And so why is it not a broader part of what we want to do and talk about in anthropology? Part of the problem is linguistic, right? I mean, English feels like a really weak language when it comes to describing smells. We can say what things smell like, but we don't, it's not like you look at something that's green and say it's leaf colored. We have a word for the color, which is green, but we can say that something smells like tea, but we don't have words to describe that smell independent of the object, right? Do other languages all share that weakness or is this like language of emotion where different languages all have different words that they use to describe these things and we're not quite sure what they, they refer to the same things? And different people experiencing smells in different ways as well. So you can never really be sure that one smell is invoking the same thing. So it's really interesting that you should say that because that's qualia. And we've argued about qualia before on yes. the show. And you've often said that you we haven't said that you don't agree with qualia, but we've worked on the assumption that the phenomenological method is kind of dependent on qualia. Which is an assumption that people do. An assumption that people do way. experience things the same way. No, that we can get closer by using our own sensibilities, like working off the assumption that humans are just as similar as they are different trying to understand someone else's lived experiences as closely as possible to help us relate to them more. So I can see how smell would be a great way into that. Mm. It's not to say that we would smell, say, blood on the floor the same way somebody else would smell blood on the floor, but we could use it to explore the social meanings of that smell, right? Like the context in which that comes up. In my case, you know, that would be like at a big ceremony, people slaughter a pig and there's blood on the floor. And so then I could talk to people about the emotions that that brings up. Whereas to me, the smell of blood on the floor can pretty much only mean something bad. To them, it could really mean something good. And there could be all completely different associations with it. And it's perhaps the most immediate social filter that we have when we enter a field site. Smell is probably one of the differences that soon becomes familiar to us. Yeah, it's less about what smell is and more about what smell means. But you're right that it is experienced so differently according to different people like we might have an aversion to a particular smell, whereas like if someone's grown up with it their whole life, it's just normal to them. Versus when they sort of come to, I don't know, Australia and like, what is, you know, what does Australia smell like? Australia smells clean. <laughs> I was just talking to one of the new students who's come in. He's from India and had been living in Delhi. And I asked him whether Austra he'd just arrived in Australia. I asked him whether it met his expectations. The first thing he said was about how clean everything smelled, having come from that polluted atmosphere. And Delhi's really bad right now that he could just step out of a building here in Canberra and just breathe deeply, breathe that air. And that that was an amazing thing and a really integral part of his Australian experience. So this is just reminding me of Mary Douglas's work on purity and pollution, because what those smells mean in terms of being clean or unclean is so enculturated. Yeah, and I think that, that sort of lends itself to a discussion on waste and how do you discard things. I think like in our own society, we're so used to garbage being put out immediately and being taken away. And in some ways, our like home environments are quite sanitized versus maybe in some places where, you know, the waste stays in a particular part of the yard the whole year or gradually disintegrates away or is taken away by the ocean. I think it's like such a different way of sort of experiencing the environment. One of the ways that our home spaces are sanitized is with smell, mm. right? With the perfumes that are in all the home products that we use and the soaps and the deodorizers and all of the different ways that we manipulate the smell and the cleaning the products. It can be sometimes it's about actual cleanliness. Sometimes it's just about masking. Smell can perform these very different functions. I feel like you guys all took this down like a totally different angle than I was expecting. <laughs> and thinking about what I was really thinking about is talking much more seriously, uh, taking smell as a kind of... Because we talk about soundscapes, right? Charles Hishkin talks about soundscapes. 
And one of the things I like about that as a part of ethnography is that it adds to the richness of an overall scene. When you talk about the things that you hear, not just the things that you see, and I don't just mean hear in the sense that you hear informants speak to you, but I mean that you hear ambiently. What are the sounds that are around you? Those add to the richness of ethnography. And one of those things I think we can definitely draw attention to in terms of making more alive the material that we write is this idea of smell. What are the smells that we had in the field? And what do they mean, not only for our informants, but also for us in terms of invoking particular kind of attachments to the field site as, as a place that we ourselves have spent time in? All right. Well, that's all we have time for on that segment. But let's move on. Justine, tell us, what have you been thinking about this week? Uh, so I've been thinking about colonization. I went to see the movie Black Panther, which explores these issues around colonization, the city of Wakanda being a place that hasn't been colonized. In Myanmar, I did my research amongst Karen people who have been colonised on multiple occasions by both the British, also by the Thai, and more recently by the Burmese. And I've been kind of questioning my own experience um, from a settler colony and how little, I guess, I have engaged in Australia's own experience of colonisation um, and how little knowledge I have Yeah, I guess my question to you guys is why we as anthropologists, we know so much about other people in other societies, how little we reflect on our own society, particularly in relation to issues of colonization. I have to say, as an American in Australia, I feel like the awareness of Australia as a settler colonial nation is actually a lot stronger here than it is in America. It came to my attention really soon after I arrived here when I heard my first acknowledgement of country, like the one that we do at the top of these episodes. Like I acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal Ngambri peoples. The first time I came to ANU, I was at like a graduate drinks and somebody, a white guy, dinged a glass and said, before we begin, and I welcome all of you graduate students to the university, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I had never heard anything like this before. I was totally blown away by it. You know, having grown up on the East Coast, I'm from New York City, it's a place where Native America has been almost entirely erased from everyday life, except insofar as they run some casinos in Connecticut. The idea that there had been First Nations, histories and languages and religions, all of that, it's all invisible. I was not taught about it. I didn't know the name of the people who lived on the land where I grew up. Do you know now? I had to look it up recently. It's Lenape. It's just lately, as I've been living in Australia, that I've tried to repicture America in terms of those nations that were erased by the present settler colonial state. It's really, it's really hard to do. It's hard to see through the very, very thick layers of institutions and the thick enculturation that I've been given in America as a land of manifest destiny that belongs to settlers and a frontier. Like I could relate to a lot of what you've said about your own experience of not having been educated enough about local Indigenous people. And sometimes for me, it feels really tokenistic in Australia, our approach to this. And I was chatting with a New Zealander recently, and she was horrified at how little engagement we have. Even though we have this acknowledgement of country, she said in New Zealand, there's a sort of a much more significant... um, The Maori people are really much more prominent and empowered. Yeah. And even if you think about their national anthem, it's got Maori language in it, a lot of, you know, schools teach the Maori language and obviously it's quite a different situation because in Australia we have multiple groups which is I guess the same in the US Uh, so you have a less unified group in which to coalesce around because here in Australia there's how many hundreds of indigenous groups I'm not even sure how many a lot 
Where I did field work in Iran, the notion of colonialism was so powerful and Iranians feel so slighted by their relationship with colonial powers. You can't miss the history of colonialism in Iran. One of the words that you learn as a student of Persian quite quickly in Iran is the word for colonizer. And yet in some ways, Iran's experience is very different to somewhere like Australia. Iran hasn't gone through a kind of total cultural destruction. It hasn't gone through the kind of systematic genocide of people that we've had here And I I think the notion of colonialism is a kind of useful tool in terms of talking to a broader discourse. But I feel like as anthropologists, we have to kind of break down the ways in which colonialism is not the same everywhere. In my field site in southeastern Indonesia, the religion that was brought by colonizers is now completely central to the identity that people in Flores have as Catholics within an overwhelmingly Muslim nation. Colonialism has played a really key role in creating that identity as well as the identity of the nation at large. You know, people I met in Flores talked about how they had been colonized by the Dutch for 350 years. That's not the history. Java was colonized for 350 years. Flores was only colonized by the Dutch, or at least their part of Flores, for only 35 years. But that story of colonialism is central to the cohesion of Indonesia as a modern nation today. So how do we bring this back to Australia? Yeah, I think we've all kind of been dodging the question in a way. Yeah, there's the difficult issue of whether justice is about finding room for indigenous people within colonial legal frameworks, like rights frameworks, or whether justice would be about withdrawing those institutions altogether. I was talking to a friend recently about Australian government and the governor general, and my friend said maybe it was time for Australia to have an indigenous governor general. And my thought to that was the governor general can dissolve the government if he wants to, right? What if an indigenous governor general dissolved every government on the grounds of it being colonial and illegitimate? But this is, this is what, in some ways what I mean about the fact that we can't just gloss a single colonial phenomenon. We are talking about situations that are ultimately profoundly different. What's interesting about New Zealand and Australia is how historically, and I mean prior to European colonization, they were two very different places with very different histories. In every different scenario, you have to have a kind of different response in the same way that Aboriginal Australians who live in Central Australia will have a very different experience of European colonisation to Aboriginal Australians who live in Sydney. How we negotiate those different relationships, I think, really is the key to not coming over as tokenistic. Well, this is a topic we could obviously talk about forever. There's tons more to unpack here, but we are going to have to move on. Uh, To me, the final segment, and I am going to talk today... A little bit about guns. I'm not going to go too much into the anthropology of guns per se. I would just point you to um, Living Anthropologically, Jason Antrosio's blog, and he's written about it there. And he falls to the same sort of political side of the question I do, which is that the guns have got to go. But instead, I'm going to talk about the way that the gun issue gets discussed in the United States. The way that it's often referred to is using the term tribalism, that America falls into two different tribes. There are the people who have the guns and the people who hate the guns. They're so separate, they can't talk to each other. Now, tribes, that's a term that has a long history in anthropology, but it's also one that we haven't used in this discipline for a long time because it doesn't actually mean that much. It comes out of a basis as like a kinship group, like a clan, like an extended kin group, but maybe it's a linguistic group. It has fuzzy borders. People can belong to more than one tribe. They can change between tribes. We've kind of abandoned it as an analytical category because it has no core, like there's no there there. And so it really bothers me when I hear commentators in America and some very prominent people referring to America as falling into tribes. It seems to suggest that people's preferences are inbred. They're not a matter of choice. You don't choose to be a gun owner or choose to not be a gun owner. You're either born into one tribe or another, that it's something that can't be changed. 
And it feels like a real abdication of the responsibility to actually engage with people who disagree with you as if their opinions are something that they're born with. It's like it racializes the question. Would you have us use a different word? Would you like Durkheim's primal horde? (laughs) (laughs) Who wouldn't like a primal horde? Can you please explain to those of us who don't know what that is? I can't remember. It's something from when I did like Anthropology 101. Yeah, because it's it's something that we don't use anymore. It's It's like old, old history of the discipline. (laughs) It's that ancient racialized thinking in which everything about a culture has to do with blood. I think you're tapping into some stuff about the overlap between like biology and culture, because there are some people who would argue that perhaps gun preferences are evidence of you know certain biological phenomena. And a lot of people are also really quick to make those evolutionary biology arguments like, oh, women are less good at blah because they're genetically blah. It's a primitive and deterministic view of what you might call human nature that's held by a lot of people. So is there a better way of framing this? Everything's gobbledygook and everyone is everything and everything changes constantly. Is this not the lesson of anthropology? I mean, the question then is, what do you see anthropology's role in contributing to the gun debate? How are you going to say to people died in the wall gun owners who live in Texas. I don't want to stereotype. It's not just Texans who have guns. Other Americans have guns Alaska. too. Alaska. This is the great dilemma of anthropology, right? We can always deconstruct. You can say what makes someone a member of an ethnic group? These things are defined relationally, etc. But at the end of the day, does that mean anything to the person whose internal experience of being in that ethnic group? profoundly shapes everything that they do. Everyone is entitled to the occasional existential crisis. There are a lot of things that can trigger that existential crisis, but everyone is capable of questioning the fundamental beliefs that they have grown up with. Everyone is capable of becoming aware of the structures that have bound them up so far, and people are capable of bringing some agency to those structures. But that is a liberal disposition. I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking about a chapter I'm writing on education. And I've just read Andy Kipnis's great book called Governing Educational Desire, where he really talks about authoritative modes of education and how the idea that people should have existential crises or that they should engage in widespread debate or any of these kind of things is totally alien to a system of thought which says basically the continuing replication of previously thought things is an ideal outcome. Well, yes, Andy Kipnis is writing in the context of China. But I think even in the context of China or Iran or even Myanmar, I still think people can have some freedom of thought. No, I'm not saying that. It's not me saying they can't have freedom of thought. Right. I'm not saying that educative systems in authoritarian states are perfect replication machines because they are obviously not. Mm. People do dissent. But what I'm saying is what Ian's talking about is an ideal mode in which having an existential crisis, questioning the system, is understood to be a good thing that people should do. And now as the authoritarian of this podcast, I'm going to say that our time is up. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I want to thank Julia Brown. Thanks, Ian. Simon Theobald. Woo! Justine Chambers. Thank you. And me, Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is me, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And please leave us a rating, leave us a review, let us know what you like, didn't like. It helps people find the show, and it helps us make the show better. You can find show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything you want to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabrow. You can find a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks to Will Grant and Maud Rowe. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange. 
Blur the tribes, blur the boundaries. <laughs> I feel like you should make it more authoritarian. 